You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, as always, and your guide for the next one hour, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan. So thank you for tuning in for the Thursday night edition of Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. I'm happy to be here talking to you tonight when there is so much going on around the globe that is of world importance, and I'm privileged and honored to have the ability to bring this incredibly important information to people's attention, and it's not a task that I take lightly. So I really do appreciate you investing your mind time in tonight's programming and thinking about what you're hearing and seeing and what's going on around you, because if we are not committed to learning more about our world and the way that it is uh, taking shape around us, then we are losing the battle for our cognitive liberty, which is the only battle that matters. And tonight, uh, we're going to be going over all sorts of news and information from around the world. I'm going to be breaking down some of the headlines and stories for you, and we will also have wide-open phone lines. So anything you'd like to get off your chest or anything you'd like to ask me, I'm happy to hear at 1-800-313-9443. That's 1-800-313-9443, and we can get you up and on the air to talk about whatever is on your mind. And there are many things on my mind tonight, and I actually want to start with something that, on the bigger scheme of things, perhaps, well, is not so important in this specific story, but let's take a look at it anyway. I thought this was something kind of humorous, at the very least. Uh, I'm sure all of you saw at least some of the 9-11, 11th anniversary coverage from the alternative media happening this week here on Republic Broadcasting, on my program, on many other uh, radio broadcasts and podcasts, etc. besides. But uh, I thought this was particularly humorous in a, in a sick way. BuzzFeed.com published on uh, the 12th of September 2011, 2012. This little story, five people still pushing 9-11 conspiracy theories. They're still going strong, and they want you to know it. Well, on so many levels, if you look at this uh, story on BuzzFeed.com, which for those of you who don't know is basically one of these gawker-type, humorous, silly, fluffy news aggregator-type store uh, websites, it's obviously going to be a bit of a 9-11 truth hit piece, and uh, it's going to be making fun of people. And yet, well, is it really? Anyway, the funniest part about all of this, this particular uh, post, is that the five people still pushing 9-11 conspiracy theories right there at the very top of this list is yours truly. Uh, James Corbett, and they they quote me, um, those who are concerned with 9-11 truth and justice will continue to fight on to answer the questions that your government cannot and will not answer, whether those answers come now, 11 years from now, or generations from now. And that's a quote from my post, The Unanswered Questions of 9-11, which also introduces my recent podcast episode on the topic, The Meaning of 9-11 Truth. And uh, so that's right there at the very top of this BuzzFeed post, followed by a Yemeni researcher, Yahya, Muhammad Yahya al-Khatib, who I haven't heard of before, 
then followed by the honorary president of the Supreme Court of Italy, who wrote a pretty uh, explosive, if you'll forgive the, the use of that term, um, story, uh, a personal essay on at the Journal of 9-11 Studies, which includes this quote, the 9-11 attacks were a global state terror operation permitted by the administration of the USA, which had foreknowledge of the operation, yet remained intentionally unresponsive in order to make war against Afghanistan and Iraq. Pretty important statement there from the honorary president of the Supreme Court of Italy. That's followed up by uh, a statement from Paul Craig Roberts, the former assistant secretary treasurer uh, under uh, under Reagan, and then finally followed up by uh, Catherine Austin Fitz, who was the federal housing commissioner at the Department of Housing in the U.S. government. So in this list of the honorary president of the Supreme Court and these depart- State Department officials and all these people, they've got yours truly at the very top of that list. Well, it's kind of a humorous little um, sick way of making fun of 9-11 truth, but at the very least, it's getting out there and it's getting bigger and stronger all the time. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, friends. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we are going around the globe to find out what is making news and what should be making news. And we are going to do that with your help, so if you have any stories or anything you'd like to bring to my attention, once again, the phone lines are wide open, 1-800-313-9443. Let's move on to what is on the tip of pretty much everyone's tongue today, which is the announcement of QE3. Of course, we knew that this was a mathematical inevitability, assuming they didn't want the entire system to crash around them in a flaming hulk quite yet, and since that doesn't seem to be the game plan... Yes, Chairman Ben, the uh, the fearless Chairman Ben of the Federal Reserve, Helicopter Ben, has decided to pump more money into the markets, more funny money, to prop them up and keep them going along sideways for another several months or few years or however much they can possibly milk it for. And as I say, this isn't really a surprise. Everyone knew it. Everyone knew this was going to happen. But in what particular way was it going to happen, I guess, was the uh, the real question. And we have that answer now, and we'll take this one from the San Francisco Chronicle, because why not? Fed undertakes QE3 with $40 billion MBS purchases per month. The quote, the Federal Reserve said it will expand its holdings of long-term securities with open-ended purchases of $40 billion of mortgage debt a month, $40 billion of mortgage debt a month in a third round of quantitative easing as it seeks to boost growth and reduce unemployment. We're looking for ongoing, sustained improvement in the labor market, Chairman Ben S. Bernanke said in his press conference today in Washington following the conclusion of a two-day meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee. There's not a specific number we have in mind. What we've seen in the last six months isn't it. And so what was the inevitable effect of this? Well, according to this report, stocks jumped, sending benchmark indexes to the highest level since 2007, as the Fed said it will continue buying assets, undertake additional purchases, and employ other policy tools as appropriate if the outlook for the labor market does not improve substantially. Well, again, there's so much going on here that is uh, worthy of ridicule and mockery, mostly the idea that this ridiculous and meaningless pumping of this funny money into the markets is going to be some sort of economic savior. I don't think anyone really believes it to be so, but of course the markets will respond dutifully because it means that uh, more and more of this uh, unpurchasable debt is going to be snarfed up by the government at the expense of the taxpayers. So 
Uh, thank you very much, uh, taxpayers of the United States. Uh, you are now helping to fund more of this ridiculousness, not necessarily with uh, your tax money, but at the very least with the debt money that is being put on top of you and every citizen of the United States right now, which is now o- clocking over $16 trillion for the United States. An absolutely staggering sum of money that is uh, on the back of every man, woman, child, and newborn baby and baby yet to be born in the United States. And uh, this is an unserviceable debt that is completely unsustainable and is going to cause the ultimate crash of the system. It's not a question of if, but when. So uh, everyone can look forward to that, I guess. But it'll be a little bit further down the road thanks to this $40 billion of mortgage debt per month being purchased by the Federal Reserve. Well, there you go. So that's the big announcement everyone was waiting for on the heels of the big announcement last week that everyone also knew was going to happen, which was the uh, Mario Draghi version of the QE uh, plan, basically uh, the bond buyback plan that he announced, the unlimited bond buyback plan. No matter what happens, the European Central Bank is going to be there to bail out the euro. So that is going along just at the same time as this QE3 is going along, just at the same time as a similar uh, scheme is being hatched by the Chinese, who are also doing this stimulus spending into their economy. And uh, it almost seems like this kind of coordinated plan among the uh, central banks of the world to quantitative ease all at the same time so that the currencies will all devalue against each other at the same rate. So no one will be that much the wiser. It it, uh, almost seems that way. It's almost like there's a coordinated global government at play. Wow, I wonder if that could be the case. And uh, as as I say, since all of this is happening in these various different markets at the same time with these different currencies, if they're all going down and being inflated away to nothing at the same time, then they're all sinking at the same time. So you can't tell which one is surging ahead and which one is devaluing because they're all going down. So it's uh, it's quite an ingenious plan, except for that pesky metals market, which tends to reflect the real value of those uh, funny pieces of paper that are floating around. So now we start to see the spike in gold. And as it starts to go through the roof, and we'll have to see what uh, what tricks they have up their sleeve to try to convince the public that uh, that gold and silver and platinum are not good investments. And uh, and of course that is the the safe harbor. Um, it's not an investment; it's an insurance plan for if and when the currency finally does collapse. Gold will retain its value, but will you retain your gold? That's the question, my friends, because it is not it is it is not something unheard of for gold to have been confiscated by the government because they know what's what and they know where the money really lies. So actually, this uh, this humorous little article actually it should either be chilling or humorous. But uh, if you can't laugh, then you're going to have to cry. So let's laugh. Um, came out from the Yahoo News earlier this month, and I don't think it's gotten enough attention, so let's give it a little bit of attention. It runs under the headline, Judge says 10 rare gold coins worth $80 million belong to Uncle Sam. Quote, a judge ruled that 10 rare gold coins worth $80 million belong to the U.S. government, not a family that had sued the U.S. Treasury, saying it had illegally seized them. The 1933 St. Godin's double eagle coin was originally valued at $20, but sold for as much as $7.5 million at Sotheby's auction in 2002, according to Courthouse News. After President Theodore Roosevelt, uh, I think they mean FDR, but anyway, that's Yahoo News for you, had the U.S. abandoned the gold standard, most of the 445,500 double eagles that the Philadelphia Mint had struck 
were melted into gold bars. However, a Philadelphia mint cashier had managed to give or sell some of them to a local coin dealer, Israel Swit. In 2003, Swit's family, Joan Langbord and her two grandsons, drilled open a a safety deposit box that had belonged to him and found the ten coins. When the Langbords gave the coins to the Philadelphia Mint for authentication, the government seized them without compensating the family. You can go on and continue reading from that article. It is absolutely insane. But yes, the government still claims that any of these 1933 St. Godin's double eagle coins floating around out there are still the property of the United States government. And the courts have backed them up on it. So this, what, 80-year-old executive order forcing all U.S. citizens in the land of the free and the home of the brave to turn in their gold coins is still in effect. So if you have any uh, sitting in any undrilled safety deposit boxes lying around your Swiss mansion, I suggest you don't turn them into the Philadelphia Mint for authentication because you will never see them again. But it just goes to show it is just a good reminder of the the ever-present fact that, yes, the U.S. government has, and probably will again, if it ever come, push ever comes to shove, confiscated the gold of the public. Why would they do that? Because they know the gold is where the store of the value really is. Is it the basis for an economic system? Do I think gold is money and that it should be the basis for a monetary system? I personally don't. I think it's a pretty ridiculous way to run a monetary system. But as a store of value, I think it's probably the uh, the safest uh, store of value that's out there, and it retains its value for millennia, as opposed to this paper, which tends to get inflated away to nothing. Let's move along. We are in a very precarious economic situation in a number of ways, and one of them that strikes me as being particularly egregious is the way that, uh, well, as we sit on the precipice of this digital age, there are so many digital wonders, like the fact that I'm coming to you from my home in Japan as we speak, but also some digital perils that are knocking at our door. Not only the specter of the cashless society, which will make uh, even that paper money sitting in your pocket obsolete, as the government will be able to turn off and on your ability to buy and sell by uh, the, uh, the chip that will be implanted somewhere in you that will give you access to your digital wallet and all of that nightmare technology, which is already here. It's just now being introduced to the public. But uh, on top of that, we're also dealing with a new paradigm for an economy that is not based on physical goods or the production of physical goods. It's based on the production of lines of code, ones and zeros, digital binary goods. And we are moving into a virtual world in which these digital goods will be, and are being, already being, uh, bought and sold in ways that don't correspond to anything that happens in the marketplace. So here's an example of what I'm talking about. At businessinsider.com, they had this article from the 11th of September. Google, we didn't know you could patent round corners. And it points to a, uh, a interview with Bloomberg TV that uh, David Lawyee, the VP of Corporate Development at Google, did, uh, talking about some of the, uh, the the ways that they were surprised by that recent Apple-Samsung verdict. For those of you who aren't following that, basically Apple was awarded, what was it, a billion dollars in uh, infringement uh, on their patents from Samsung for their uh, Galaxy uh, phones, which apparently copied the iPhone. And there was a compelling case to be made and from their uh, Samsung's own documents that they did 
knowledgeably and, and with foreknowledge and, and total intent, did copy many of the iPhone's features. So as far as the law exists, I suppose Samsung was guilty in that sense. But some of the things that were in there were just ridiculous. And so some of the ways that patent law has been extended is pretty remarkable. And this uh, Google VP is talking about that in this video. I'll direct you there. Of course, it'll be linked up in the show notes for tonight's episode at corporatereport.com slash radio so you can watch it for yourself. But basically, he's saying, we didn't know you could patent things like rounded corners like they have on the iPhone icons. And uh, so now we're going to have to patent uh, everything we do and every conceivable thing we can think of. So we're moving into an economy that isn't built on anything resembling productive capacity or any sort of creative creative process. It's based on the ability to patent and intellectually uh, dominate ideas like rounded corners and other things on icons, on digital screens. This is not a basis for an economy, in case you're wondering, and it can only lead to certain economic destruction. But on that cheery note, let's take a short break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Welcome back to Corporate Report Radio, as tonight we are going over all of the news, making news around the world in this world in crisis that we're living in. So once again, thank you for investing your time in tonight's program. I think there's a lot of information that is really important in tonight's episode. So once again, I hope you will go and get that from CorporateReport.com. Of course, in the radio tab, you can find all of these radio shows archived. And in the video tab, you can find the videos of all of these episodes that are being recorded as well as this goes out as a video podcast. And of course, if you just want everything that's coming out from CorbettReport.com, and why wouldn't you, there are RSS feeds that you can subscribe to for free there on the subscribe tab. So you can get all of the media as it comes out. And for those of you who are wondering about last night's episode, because of some of the technical difficulties that were going on there with our connection with Carl Tykrib, unfortunately, the video did not get recorded and did not uh, end up getting posted. So... We will have to have Carl back on in the future and sort through some of those connection problems we were having. So no video from last night, but there will be video tonight and usually every night here on the program. Uh, Let's just move along to Fukushima. Of course, I am keeping up to date with the latest news on Fukushima at FukushimaUpdate.com, and I hope you are following along with me. And you can, of course, follow the Fukushima Update Twitter as well if you want all of the news as it's being posted to the site. I haven't posted up in the last couple of days, so I uh, will do so later on today for me. That would be tomorrow for you stateside. But uh, I hope you will, uh, as I say, keep up to date with what's going on there. Some interesting stories coming out. And I just want to direct you in the direction of an interesting post from NHK World earlier this week. And they were writing on the eve of the 18-month anniversary of uh, 3.11 here in Japan. uh, Obviously, 9.11 was... 18 months to the day since the uh, nuclear crisis began to unfold here. And as a result, NHK World had a a particularly good roundup of some of the problems that are going on at the Fukushima plant still today, despite the the fact that no one's really paying attention to it in the mainstream media because it's in cold shutdown, so everything's okay. Well, this uh, post from NHK World puts some of that, uh, that type of talk to bed. It's called Fukushima Plant Cleanup Efforts Face Challenges. And it goes on to highlight, for example, the troubles that have plagued the cooling water circulation system. It says so far 56 instances of tainted water leaks have been reported. Facilities to decontaminate water have stopped 12 times due to leaks and power supply problems. 
On August 30th, coolant water being poured into the three crippled reactors temporarily fell below the necessary levels. Of the number two reactors, 41 thermometers, only 16 are working properly. Uh, Contaminated water levels have continued to rise at a pace of about 400 tons a day due to groundwater inflow, and that has filled almost 90% of the plant's storage tanks. Uh, A lot of quite disturbing pieces of information there in a particularly frank NHK World piece. So um, once again, I hope you are keeping up to date with Fukushima as more continues to come out from that. But Right now we have a caller on the line, and the phone lines continue to be wide open, so if anyone else would like to get in at 1-800-313-9443, you are more than welcome to do so. But let's turn to the calls, and we have Josh on the line from Michigan. So, Josh, thanks for calling in tonight. Hi, James. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, thanks again for everything that you do for uh, the movement and really getting the word out there. Well, I'd only do it because uh, if I don't do it, then I couldn't look myself in the mirror. So I hope uh, everyone else is doing what they can in their own way, too. I hear you on that one. Uh, I just had two quick notes to make, one on, first on the double eagle coins, and the second uh, about QE3. Uh, as, as it relates to the double eagle coins, uh, I think there, there is an important distinction that needs to be drawn in the sense that the 1933 mint run of those coins were never actually released by the United States government. So when they reconfiscate those gold coins specifically, it's under the auspices of them, uh, those coins never being in circulation, and they claim at least... They were stolen from the vault. Of course, you know, the, the ramifications or the nature of that theft is, is never really defined by a court system. So, quite frankly, there's not, the distinction is, you know, virtually meaningless, but it is, is, I think it's important at least. Well, that is an important piece of the puzzle. So thank you for bringing that to my attention. I wasn't aware of that, that aspect of it, and it wasn't covered in that Yahoo piece. So, uh, so that is an important yeah, piece absolutely. of the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, a second note on uh, the QE3, the third round of quantitative easing that's going on, just a, just a bit of a silver lining. A few months ago, I was actually in Atlanta, Georgia, and visited the Federal Reserve there. They actually have a museum. And uh, at the front of the museum, they actually had this fancy new display uh, with big glowing letters that said, Myth versus Reality. And uh, it was this LCD display that flashed uh, various points of... of you know, the, the operations of the Federal Reserve and how people, you know, in modern terms, misconstrue their, their, uh, their intent when obviously it was a, it's a board of 40 slides worth of propaganda. But I think it's, it's really, you know, kind of, you know, it, it's inspiring to know that even in their propagandized museum, you ha- they now have to open it with defining the terms of, of what the Federal Reserve is actually there to do at all. Absolutely. If they're backpedaling and on the defensive, that means we are having an effect. So uh, you're exactly right. That is uh, hopeful in a way. Absolutely. And uh, I managed to actually uh, take my smartphone in there and uh, snap some pictures of that. So uh, awesome. you know, maybe uh, I, could, I could send those to you and you could post them on the website because I do think that some of them are just are, are very interesting, you know, factoids that, that they try to spew out that are obviously you know, not true. Absolutely right. Well, no, I'd love to be able to post them. So absolutely get in touch with me through the contact form on the website, and I will give you an email address where you can send those uh, photos, and I'll be happy to post them. And uh, that goes for anyone out there who has any interesting photos or or even video footage. Um, I'm always looking for video footage for my videos. So if anyone has anything out there of uh, anything interesting, please send it along. I'll be happy to post it. So uh, my hat's off to you for your, for, for that, Josh. I, I do appreciate that information, and I'm looking forward to the photos. Thanks for calling all right we're going to take another break we'll be right back Turn it up. I want my belt. 
Okay, welcome back to the program, friends. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio, and I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight, we're sailing around the world to check out some of the stories that are making headlines right now. And once again, I'm open to any input from any of you out there, 1-800-313-9443. But let's move along to the latest hot spot that is gaining attention at the moment uh, there in North Africa, as some of these embassy attacks are starting to gain traction and gain some attention and I think spawning copycat movements. So for those of you who have been under a rock for the last couple of days, you will maybe not have heard that uh, the U.S. ambassador to Libya, J. Christopher Stevens, was uh, killed uh, along with a couple of other embassy officials there in Libya in Benghazi uh, by some protesters who were angry about an anti-Muslim, anti-Mohammed film that was recently produced, I guess, in the United States. Um, I, I know very little about this video other than it looks like it was produced for $10 on a shoestring budget and clearly isn't any sort of major production. So I'm not sure how anyone even heard about it, but there you go. There's this video that is apparently mocking Muslims, and uh, as a result, there's been all these protests breaking out around the world. And the latest news on all of this, uh, you can find, for example, at the Washington Post, more protests break out in Muslim world as U.S. appeals for calm, talking about how, for example, in Sana'a, Yemen, the U.S. embassy was overrun Thursday by protesters who stormed a wall set fire to a building inside the compound, broke windows, and carried away office supplies and other souvenirs before being dispersed by local security forces. And we also have in Cairo, clouds of tear gas floated through the fortified area around the U.S. Embassy as security forces clashed with protesters for the third straight day. Smaller demonstrations were reported throughout the region, as well as in Iran and Bangladesh. So definitely some of this violence and uh, protests spreading. We'll have to see how far and how fast it spreads. But there's uh, there's some interesting takes on this coming out from, from some of the places you would expect it. For example, of course, Tony Cardellucci at the Land Destroyer Report, landdestroyer.blogspot.com, has some coverage of this that I will direct people to. But I, I definitely want to highlight this article. Our old friend Pepe Escobar, uh, ro- a roving correspondent for the Asia Times Online, wrote just a brilliant piece, brilliantly written, brilliantly realized, so I want to direct people to it. It's called Mr. Blowback Rising in Benghazi, and uh, I'll, read it. I'll read the opening of this to you because I think it's just too good to pass up. It, says, uh, it starts with a quotation, Daddy, what is blowback? Here's a fable to tell our children by the fire in a not-so-distant post-apocalyptic dystopian future. Once upon a time, during George W. Bush's War on Terror, the forces of good in Afghanistan captured and duly tortured one evil terrorist, Abu Yahya al-Libi. Abu Yahya al-Libi was, of course, Libyan. He slaved three years in the bowels of Bagram prison near Kabul, but somehow managed to escape that supposedly impregnable fortress in July 2005. At the time, the forces of good were merrily in bed with Colonel Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, whose intelligence services, to the delight of the Bush administration, were doing their nastiest to exterminate, or at least isolate, al-Qaeda-style Salafi jihadists of the al-Libi kind. But then, in 2011, the forces of good, under new administration, decided it was time to bury the oh-so-passé war on terror, and dance to a new, more popular groove, humanitarian intervention, also described as kinetic military action. 
So Al-Libi was back from the dead, now fighting side by side with the forces of good to topple and eventually snuff out evil Colonel Gaddafi. Al-Libi had become a freedom fighter, even though he was openly calling for Libya to become an Islamic emirate. The honeymoon didn't last long. In September 2012, for the first time in three months, Al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri, a.k.a. The Surgeon, released a 42-minute video special to celebrate the 11th anniversary of 9-11, finally admitting the snuffing out of his number two. His number two was none other than Abu Yahya al-Libi, targeted by one of U.S. President Barack Obama's cherished drones in Waziristan on June 4th. An immediate effect of al-Zawahiri's video was an angry armed mob led by Islamist outfit Ansar al-Sharia, set fire to the U.S. consulate in Benghazi. The U.S. ambassador to Libya, Christopher Stevens, was killed. It didn't matter that Stevens happened to be a hero of the NATO rebels who had liberated Libya, notoriously sprinkled with Salafi jihadists of the al-Libi kind. Stevens was rewarded by Washington with the ambassadorial post only after evil Gaddafi was finally sodomized, lynched, and killed by what else? An angry mob. So finally, the blowback serpent was able, able to bite its own tail. Again, some brilliant writing there and a very, very important story, so I'm glad it's being told and being told in such an effective way. Talking about Abu Yahya al-Libi and the recent uh, admission by Ayman al-Zawahiri of uh, Libby's death and how that was at least partially responsible for the angry mobs in Benghazi, which is a piece of the puzzle that we're not hearing anywhere in the establishment media, which is only talking about this Muslim video, so... I'm not sure what to what extent this this anti-Muslim video is a is a psyop in and of itself. Of course, it's being um, it's being propounded by Terry Jones, the uh, the the interesting uh, pastor who was behind the Ground Zero mosque distraction, etc. So uh, so there's a lot going on here, but uh, but I hope people will at least take a look at that um, blow, Mr. Blowback Rising in Benghazi column by Pepe Escobar. It's also been posted to globalresearch.ca and other outlets, so I hope people will find it and, uh, and uh, take a look at it. I think it's an important piece of this puzzle. But of course, that stage sets the stage for greater turmoil and unrest in the Arab world generally. And what is uh, something that's on the minds of many people in uh, in the Muslim world, at any rate, is uh, the impending possible Israeli intervention in Iran. And of course, that also ties into what's happening in Syria. So a lot of things uh, in the in the Muslim world at the moment that are on a lot of people's minds. And the latest development in that uh, Israeli are they are they going to are they not going to attack on Iran is an interesting little snub that came from Obama to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu who incidentally if you didn't catch last Friday's episode with Grant Smith of ermep.org talking about uh, the FBI documents that implicate Benjamin Netanyahu in a nuclear smuggling ring in the 1970s I suggest you go back in the archives on corporatereport.com and take a listen to that one. But uh, let's let's take a look at this from New York Times. They have a, a follow-up to this Obama Netanyahu spat. Uh, it's called, it runs under the headline: Israeli sharpens calls for United States to get to set Iran trigger. Quote, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel inserted himself into the most contentious foreign policy issue of the American presidential campaign on Tuesday criticizing the Obama administration for refusing to set clear red lines on Iran's nuclear progress that would prompt the United States to undertake a military strike. 
As a result, he said, the administration has no moral right to restrain Israel from taking military action of its own. Mr. Netanyahu's unusually harsh public comments about Israel's most important ally, which closely tracks what he has reportedly said in vivid terms to American officials visiting Jerusalem, laid bare the tension between him and President Obama over how to handle Iran. They also suggested that he is willing to use the pressure of the presidential election to try to force Mr. Obama to commit to attack Iran under certain conditions. Wow, Israel trying to strong-arm America into starting a war for them? No, never, certainly not. Yes, well, of course, that's exactly what's happening. That's what's been happening for years now, as Israel has been trying to get America to attack Iran, and we'll have to see what types of uh, false flag events might be engineered in the near future to make that a reality. And if not, uh, we'll see if Israel will go it alone and just rely on the United States to back them up, as they always have and presumably always will. And this cannot be good for anyone in the world, and uh, least of all the uh, people living in the region who will likely feel the nuclear fallout of any attacks on the Iranian nuclear facilities. But again, that's of little consequence to the psychopaths in charge of Israel or the psychopaths who are in charge of most of the countries. In fact, probably all of them around the world these days. Um, some more on that follow-up uh, from the f- following day, September 12th, 2012. The New York Times also had this story. Israelis fear fallout from Netanyahu's blunt comments. Quote, in Israel, where arguments are rife, there are at least two issues of national consensus that the special relationship with the United States must be preserved at all costs, and that the looming threat of a nuclear Iran must be dealt with. So on Wednesday, a day after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu publicly lashed out at the Obama administration for what he called its refusal to set clear red lines that would prompt the United States to undertake a military strike on Iran's nuclear program, Israelis were generally sympathetic to Mr. Netanyahu, even as they mulled the possible damage to ties with the White House. Mr. Netanyahu struck a more moderate tone after an overnight phone call from President Obama. And it goes on to talk about the latest diplomatic wranglings that are going on there behind the scenes. But again, this is an interesting little spat, and Obama's recent snub of Netanyahu is probably not of great consequence, but it will be read that way, as all diplomatic snubs of the sort are. Just like uh, the Clinton snub by Vice President uh, Jinping Xi here in in East Asia, in China, when she was on her recent trip, was uh, read into quite a bit. But uh, she has actually been cancelling a lot of his uh, meetings recently, so uh, there's speculation that he injured his back recently, and that has been preventing him from doing his diplomatic duties. But as always, when uh, when people refuse to meet or they don't have time to meet on various state visits, etc., it's always seen to be a big diplomatic incident. So, again, we'll see what this really means and whether or not uh, Obama's recent snub of Netanyahu means anything at all and whether this latest posturing from Israel over the Iran situation means anything different from what it's always been saying is uh, is really to be determined, but it is at the very least a hopeful thing that there has been no publicly admitted and on-the-record uh, statement about any kind of clear red line in Iran's nuclear program from the American administration, because you know as soon as that red line is drawn, the Israelis are going to find a way to convince the American public that that line has been crossed. And there is all sorts of ways that that can be done through all sorts of media manipulation. And unfortunately, we've seen that playing out 
with all too frequent uh, uh, in uh, all too frequently in the media. So we know it can be done. We know that false flag events can be engineered. So if the Iran war is truly on the table, well, God help us all because it is going to be a, an absolute nightmare. And I'm not sure exactly what's going to play out from that, but I can imagine the repercussions will be immediate and will be pretty large. So that is uh, all by way of at least introducing and reintroducing the idea that the Iran strike is still on the table. There are still people speculating it could happen before this November's election. And even after the, the election, I don't think it's going to be a safe zone because certainly if Romney gets in, he's already said he's going to do go along with whatever Israel wants to do. And if Obama gets in, he will have the uh, the re-election uh, uh, fears and jitters uh, removed from his shoulders so that he will be able to act in any way he wants without fear of repercussion of being booted out of office in four years' time. So either way, I think it's going to be a very tense few months as uh, Israel is clearly not going to give up on this issue and it's not going to go away. The only question is how it's going to be resolved. And if we needed to add any other worrying signs to this mix, we certainly could do so with a story that would be pretty head-scratching under any normal circumstances. But of course, these are not normal circumstances. And so some of you out there may have caught in recent months, uh, sorry, recent days, that Canada suddenly and without any warning announced that they were removing all diplomatic relations from Iran. They were removing their diplomats from Iran. They were expelling Iranian diplomats from Canada. They were severing all of their diplomatic ties with Iran suddenly without warning and in a move that's been called unprecedented by people in the know. Um, it, it came on the back of a statement by John Baird, the Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister, who came out and said that Iran is the biggest uh, state supporter of terrorism in the world, that old card that they love to trumpet, because anything we do is uh, freedom-loving and, uh, and full of wholesome goodness, and anything anyone we don't like does is terrorism, right? So uh, Canada comes out and announces Iranians are just terrorist scum that are operating all around the world, so we don't want anything to do with them ever again, and we're cutting all diplomatic ties. A bizarre move, very sudden, no forewarning, and what are the repercussions of this? Well, why on earth would they even bother to do this? Certainly no one was thinking that uh, Canada and Iran were so closely tied at any rate, but uh, for them to cut, suddenly come out and announce that they're cutting all diplomatic ties is a pretty major move. And to my mind, can only mean that uh, there are, at the very least, very real fears about a, a very near and coming attack on Iran. Because why else would they suddenly start withdrawing all their officials from the country? I don't know. But again, it's an interesting little mystery, and it was picked up on by intelnews.org, which had a story, Why Did Canada Suddenly Suspend All Diplomatic Ties with Iran? And it goes on to talk about this story and about uh, John Baird's surprise announcement. And it says, for example, uh, Ray Bosvert, until recently assistant director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, basically the Canadian CIA, described Ottawa's move as unprecedented. What was it that caused the final rupture in Canadian-Iranian relations? Why expel the Iranian diplomats now? Leaving Middle Eastern experts in Canada... Can Leading Middle Eastern experts in Canada cannot seem to put their finger on a specific reason. Iran observer James Devine of Canada, Canada's Mount Allison University told CBS that Ottawa's move was not tied to a specific event. The Canadian former ambassador to Tehran, John Mundy, said he believed the break in relations was not tied to a direct threat against Canadian interests. 
It goes on from there, but basically this entire story is about how no one really knows what caused this, and no one can say what specific event, if any, actually caused this sudden and complete severing of diplomatic ties. So just one of those little mysteries that, unfortunately, we might find out the reason for in retrospect if and when an attack does go down. And as I say, and as I've been saying literally since the second episode of the Corbett Report podcast way back in June of 2007, World War III starts in Iran, and it's a line that I still hold to. I think the next major conflict uh, that will draw in China and Russia and Many of the countries that have been sitting on the sidelines watching with horror as the U.S. NATO forces invade further and further into Afghanistan and Iraq and start surrounding Iran, I think they're not going to be able to sit on the sidelines in the event of whatever strike may or may not be coming. So once again, let's hope that this does not happen and does not play out the way that it looks like it's going to play out. And uh, that's all that most of us can do at this moment, because certainly the answer is not going to be found at the ballot box. Whether you choose Rambama or Obamni, it's not going to make a mountain, uh, it's not going to make any difference whatsoever, because they are the same thing, they are marching to the same Piper's tune. So on that cheery note, once again, let's take another short break, and we'll be back to wrap up tonight's edition of Corbett Report Radio, right after these messages. Alright friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. This is the closing minutes of tonight's broadcast. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I would invite you to go there so that you can find all of the links to all of the stories that I'm talking about. It will be posted up along with the audio and video archives of this program. As soon as I can get that posted, so generally the audio will be up in an hour or so after the broadcast and the video a few hours after that. And of course, once again, if you are subscribed to the RSS feed at CorbettReport.com, you will get all of the media as it comes out. And once again, that's completely free to do. And if you don't know how to use an RSS feed, there is an instructional video that's linked up there on the subscribe tab of CorbettReport.com. But tonight we've been going over various news stories that are making news around the world and that are some, I think, important stories for us all to be keeping our eye on. And finally, I'd like to turn to something here in my own backyard here in East Asia. As I'm sitting here in Japan, which is currently undergoing some pretty tense moments with China, an increasingly assertive China that is flexing its newfound naval might uh, around the South China Sea and the East China Sea. And in the East China Sea, there is a small island chain called the, in Japanese, it's called the Senkaku Islands. In Chinese, it's called the Diao Islands. I'm absolutely certainly pronouncing that incorrectly. So I will continue to refer to it as the Senkaku Islands because I can pronounce that. And these islands are, uh, well, they've been nominally under the control of Japan since 1895, and there hasn't been much dispute over that until very recently, when, of course, some gas and oil deposits were found um, near the coast. So the control of these islands is suddenly a geopolitically important uh, thing, and lo and behold, China and Japan are now squabbling over them. So 
Chinese protesters have uh, gone to the islands to try to, uh, I, I guess, make a point or occupy them or what have you, and uh, they've been thwarted by the Japanese who have captured them, and uh, Japanese protesters have likewise gone out there to try to uh, to put stake their claim to the island. Recently, the Japanese government actually purchased the islands from whoever was actually holding them before. I'm not quite clearly clear on that. But so now it's, I guess, officially under Japanese control. It's nationalized. And uh, this is causing some very tense moments here between Japan and China. And that's particularly worrying for me at the very least and probably should be concerning for other people uh, around the globe, including those in the States who are, of course, still committed to protecting uh, Korea and Japan and all of the other nations here in the East Asia and Southeast Asia that are still under the U.S. military umbrella and which are being threatened by these Chinese uh, moves of aggression. So let's take the latest on the Senkaku Island dispute from Xinhua, the uh, the official Jap- uh, Chinese mouthpiece news organization, which is talking about how Japan's purchase of the Senkaku Islands challenges post-World War II order in Asia. And basically, the long and short of it is that the Chinese government is belly aching about Japan's recent moves to establish further control over the islands. And I'm not exactly sure what kind of claim China believes to have over the islands, but clearly they think that they should have at least their finger in this pie. And if you go through and read this editorial, which again I'll link up in the show notes for tonight's episode, you'll see that they're pretty serious about it. So it might be a small thing on the big scheme of things. Who had even heard of these islands a few years ago? But uh, it's the type of thing that can start international incidents, so something we should all be keeping our eye on. Well, that's it for tonight. We've gone around the globe, so I hope you found some of this news and information helpful. And on that note, we're going to be back here tomorrow night, 23 hours from now, with more news and information that hopefully you can use and apply in your everyday life. Once again, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you for tuning in and asking you to join me again tomorrow night. So until then, thank you all for listening, and take care.